Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast by misanthropic shut-ins for misanthropic shut-ins, and also a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, and with me is Ellie Jacobs, who, like a Latter-day Caesar, stands astride E's bar on the Upper West Side like a colossus. Welcome, Ellie. Hey, Frank, and I also eat salad. Uh, as always, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative, and urge everybody to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in potato. We are also looking about starting a website, and we're also thinking about getting some T-shirts made up. So if you are interested in any of that, please uh, at us at Taking Ship or uh, email us at takingship at gmail.com. Yes, and as always... Uh, please send us your, your your praise on which we thrive and uh, and your strange hate missives on which we thrive even more. Uh, so thank you as ever for your feedback. Uh, we are extremely pleased today to be joined uh, by Lila El Gohari. Uh, we're going this we finally have an opportunity to get uh, to the bottom of uh, data in politics, which is something that everyone talks about and and I know this from personal experience, God help me, no one actually knows what any of it means, at least not to the extent that we pretend. Uh, but Lila actually does, uh, and we're very excited to have her here. She's held senior data roles with the Obama White House, with OFA, with SEIU, uh, with United Food and Commercial, commercial Workers, uh, with Allison Grimes, uh, race, for, uh, race for Senate in Kentucky in 2014, uh, and the Messina Group, among others, and she is now with uh, Target Smart. Welcome, Lila. Thank you guys so much for inviting me. That was uh, quite the intro. I don't know that I've uh, ever heard quite a fabulous intro quite like that. So, Elliot, well, thank you. you're, uh, <laughs> you're enjoying the Upper West Side with your salad. We do exactly. what we can. <laughs> we just, you know, we're, we're just trying to keep up the side. Uh, so... <laughs> I, I want to get into this a little bit because data and politics, which has been a theme, but but discussed, I think, in sort of uh, ephemeral and general terms in the in most media uh, for for a few years. You hear it referenced. There'll be after an election, there'll be some you know some process stories and you know the public prints about you know how various campaigns use data. They don't really get much attention. They're much traction. Uh, there's a sort of been growing awareness that data is important and part of politics. Uh, but after 2016, it suddenly came very sharply into focus for a number of reasons. Uh, and one of those uh, were the one of those reasons uh, was the activity around Cambridge Analytica, which has recently gotten a lot of attention. Uh, the Cambridge Analytica, as we know, is a, is a British firm that is accused of having uh, gathered and used data in, in inappropriate and potentially illegal ways in 2016 in support of Donald Trump's campaign. Can you give us a, a sort of quick overview of uh, what Cambridge Analytica is accused of doing wrong with, with data in 2016? Sure. So uh, Cambridge Analytica, their, uh, their main work has is, is been around psychometric models um, and, and social media models. And the, the main takeaway from, from the work that they did is they would go online, mostly Facebook, uh, and pretend to be a different organization. So a lot of different polling firms do this. Um, in order to gather information, uh, they partner up either with a research institute or a university and, uh, and, and get the approval that way. And once people sign into their online platform, they can then go from there and scrape personal data about each of these individuals, not only about them, but also one step removed, so all, all of their friends and families, they know information about them that's publicly available. Uh, so while you may not have been directly contacted by someone at Cambridge Analytica to for polling purposes, uh, your data still may be sort of in their warehouse because someone that you may have known 
um, may have agreed to it. So that's that's sort of the, the larger issue. I think there have been, um, these practices aren't new and they're not sort of silo just to Cambridge Analytica. The, the main issue that they're um, sort of coming into, into uh, under a lot of hot water for is that they um, pretty much use the data without, for commercial purposes, without asking um, for it for that reason. They pretended to be a research institute and didn't follow up with the research that was necessary before moving over uh, to the commercial side of things. One of the things that, and, and you know, for those who've been following Cambridge Analytica, you may know that this organization has, I, it can only be deliberate uh, can only has sort of deliberately portrayed itself as kind of the bad guys. <laughs> One of the guys who worked for Cambridge Analytica literally renamed himself Doctor Specter. I mean, it's, it's it's just I mean they they wanted to, so this may account for some of the some of why they've come in for so much criticism is that if you act like an international criminal, someone might treat you like one. Uh, but to the extent that they have defenders. Uh, and they weirdly do. One of the defenses that's been mounted for Cambridge Analytica is that they haven't done anything different than, say, what OFA 12 did uh, mm -hmm. in 2012. Uh, and, and that argument doesn't seem to hold a lot of water. But can you talk about the difference between what Cambridge Analytica did in 16 and, and what OFA did in 12? Sure. So I think, you know, four years makes a lot of difference in the online world and in terms of how much information we put on there. So that's the first thing. The amount of information gathered... Uh, on the general U.S. public in the in the last four years between those two cycles has grown astronomically. Secondly, I'd say the fact that um, it, Facebook sort of shifted from being purely a social media platform uh, into more of a news generating uh, space in that time. And so when you have people um, gathering information on each other and responding to news stories on Facebook, uh, you sort of open up this whole new segment of understanding of people's behaviors that OFA 2012 didn't have. I think the main difference, to be honest with you, is how uh, the, the data was used. Uh, in 2012, the main purpose for Facebook and Twitter and all of the social platforms was to get a better sense of whether somebody supported our candidate and if they did, getting them to vote. That was sort of the end game of it. It wasn't so much an information warfare platform as it was used in 2014, sorry, in 2016. And so um, in, in terms of the differences, I know from my end working on the digital team sort of in the States in 2012, that one of our biggest concerns was the ethics around what we were doing. And not only um, did it look right, you know, if the press were to get hold of something, but if it was the right thing to do. And there were many occasions where, um, you know, where the laws were sort of murky, um, where we made it a point to never cross that line and be as transparent as possible uh, with how we were reaching out to people. So I think those, that's sort of the main differentiating factor is, is how to approach um, the space itself and, and whether there's that that self-policing that, that needs to happen internally within any large organization. That's really a, an interesting distinction. So for OFA 12 and, and for other organizations of its, of its kind, a lot of the, this data was being used as, as a function of an already existing campaign model, which is, again, you, you figure out who your supporters are and you turn them out, right? Anyone who's worked in a field program knows that's the essence of what this thing is. Uh, and, and potentially to help figure out who needed a persuasion message. So, you know, you're trying to Got people who are undecided or who may be leaning the other way and you want to persuade them. The way Cambridge Analytica used it 
was essentially to, to muddy the waters around the concept of truth itself. Would that be a fair characterization of what happened here? Yeah, I, I would say so. I, I'd say Cambridge Analytica facilitated that um, with the information that they gathered to pass along to the campaign infrastructure. Uh, I'm not sure sort of how much of uh, of the work they did in terms of like the digital day-to-day, but uh, they, fr- from the news outlets and from conversations um, with people on that side of the aisle, that's sort of the impression that I get. Yeah. You used a term earlier uh, that I want to dig into a little bit that, that, that Cambridge Analytica used uh, uh, or, or deals in psychometric modeling. Uh, what is psychometric modeling? Right. Um, so I, so I think that's, that's part of what the, the, the main problem we come to when we talk about Cambridge Analytica, so much of their work is uh, smoke and mirrors. Um, you know, while 2016 was happening and people were talking about the work that they were doing, uh, a lot of us on the Democratic side of the aisle tried to sort of understand uh, what they were doing and, and, and what the value add was. And I think uh, across the board, we came to this conclusion that it was, um, I don't know the, the polite way of saying this, but it, it, it was complete falseness, essentially. It was bullshit. That's yes, the, that yes. seemed to be the word that's fun. We can let's we we can we can call it what it was. Can, yeah, they were what they were selling is bullshit. As far as we right. one thing we know on this podcast, it is bullshit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> listen, yeah, we may not know data, but by by God, but by God, do we know extremely confident and yet transparent falsehood? This is, I mean, that's that's our bread and butter. Right, right, and so I mean, when when we talk about modeling, essentially, is we're saying we have hundreds of different columns on each person in the United States. So let's say we know that um, Frank lives in this location in DC. He lives on the right side of the road. Uh, He's married, he's within this age bracket. And we have hundreds of other columns on Frank um, and Ellie and me and everyone that is registered to vote. And essentially what we say is based on what we know about Frank, who is a huge Obama supporter, we can then put it into this algorithm that churns out and looks at correlations between different essentially columns and variables and can then say all people who are redheads like Frank who live on the left side of the road love Barack Obama. Obviously, it's much more complicated than that, but that's the general sense of it. And so when we talk about psychometric modeling, we're essentially saying based on the infinitely larger uh, data set that is um, social listening and social media back and forth, what people are talking about, whether they like something, dislike something, put up a negative or positive meme. I mean, pretty much anything that you can attach sort of a variable to, um, based on that information, are they an angry person? Are they a happy person? Do they like cat memes? Do they not? Um, And turning that all into a space where you could then say, well, this person is a um, Hillary supporter, except if it happens to be gloomy out and then they will support Bernie Sanders. I don't know, but, but it's sort of ludicrous um, uh, personality traits coming out of whether someone shares certain pieces of content or not. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems to me like the, well, first I want to, I, I just want to highlight something because that description of modeling is is really useful. So I want to ask a couple of questions for all of the columns about, you know, me and, you know, I live on this side of the street. I live in this part of DC. I'm married. I'm in this age bracket. I have red hair, all this other stuff. Where is this data coming from? How have you got, how have you gotten it on me? Yeah. So um, one thing to be incredibly clear about is all the data that um, we get is, um, 
is is publicly sort of available. Anyone can buy it. It's consumer information. Um, it's the kind of data that different companies have been using for decades. Um, politics is fairly late to the game in that respect. Um, so when you decide to buy a house or a mortgage um, uh, or buy a car, these pieces of information have already been gathered on you over the last, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, and so politics is, 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 is fairly new to this. But essentially, when we, when we think about uh, data that's used in politics, there are sort of two main sources. The first source is from the State Board of Elections, every state in the Union and the District of Columbia. Uh, and they will give us information like your name, your voting address, um, your voting history, so whether you voted in the past, not how you voted, so that's a very uh, important distinction. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, your phone number, just very basic information, uh, party registration information, when you registered to vote, that kind of thing. Uh, and then the second part of it, where the vast majority of the much more detailed information is, is from consumer vendors. Um, and so we gather all of that information um, and attach it to one person so that we can then say, this is Frank, uh, he lives on the side of the road, but he also really likes cats. We know this because he is subscribed to Cat Fancier Magazine uh, and he happens to shop at Target and not Walmart. And so we can extrapolate all of these things on him. Uh, so so that's, that's essentially where we get a lot of our data from. The data has already existed, I think, in terms of... Um, the progress we've made has been attached to matching and how we figure out whether this Frank Spring in DC is the same as the Frank Spring that used to live in New Mexico um, and, and following you over space and time. And that's a very important thing to keep in mind just because um, people do move a lot and, and that information can get lost from state to state. When do you start running into issues of Kind of the, the the fallacies of you know uh, you know correlations equal causation with some of this because uh, in in my communications around the corporate side we've now that this is kind of a regular known thing that politics is doing it's making its way back into popularity within the corporate space as well and there's kind of this ongoing question of like great we know that A plus B equals C but we don't necessarily know that C is going to equal D. Uh, yeah, I I completely agree, and that's sort of been. Uh, one of the things that I've, you know, I've been trying to push against while I was in the consulting space of how, how can we be as authentic and honest in, in what we say the data can do? Data can inform decisions. It can help um, in prioritizing how we go about things, but it doesn't necessarily give you uh, a direct answer. Just like in politics, um, using models, um, we can say with some level of confidence that this person might support this person, but we don't know this for a fact. And it's important to keep that in mind when, when making decisions. And that's a critical distinction because I've known a few people conflate polling and modeling or, or sort of lump the two in together with data. And those are two very different things. You would, so as I, you know, would it be fair to say that the way that the distinction is based on what you know about me, you would project that I'm an Obama supporter as polling is if you've asked me. Exactly, exactly. And, and we, use, we use polling to feed into modeling or, or surveying. And so we would say, we would ask Frank, we would ask, you know, a thousand other people. And based on all of these different characteristics that we've picked up beforehand, we can then feed it into the model to give us 
the answer to base it off of. But again, it's a lot of it, even though it, it is hard science, there's a lot of art to it. And I think that's what a lot of practitioners forget. There's, there's a lot of art to how it's done um, along with the science, but also how it's applied. Where does the art come in? Is it weighting the importance of different, uh, different, uh, different characteristics, different columns, as you might call them, uh, weighting the importance of different polling? How, how, what are the, what is the, where does the science, the hard science and the defined best practice end and, and the art begin? So there, there are a lot of ways the art and the science sort of meet up. One is in how you create the poll itself, how long it is, whether you decide to do it on landlines or cell phones or online or in person, um, the way that the questions are asked, the, the order in which they're asked, how long the survey itself is. And then once you put that sort of uh, into a system that works, what regressions you use, what columns you use, um, and, and figuring out tweaking essentially with, uh, with the different variables to, to get a, a usable model to give you the answers that you need. Uh, so so it's, not, it's not as black and white as, as I think some people make it out to be. And where does direct voter contact fit into this? Because when the campaign goes on, a, goes on a persuasion push, especially over the summer, you hear this term, the, you know, the, the summer persuasion, uh, mm-hmm. you have canvassers and phone, and phone bankers out trying to reach the electorate, uh, people who've been targeted using data. Uh, to a certain degree, there is a, a specific purpose to that. You're trying to persuade potentially undecided voters, uh, but also that feeds into your data set, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Uh, So I remember in uh, 2012 and in 2014 in Kentucky, um, that's a big part of what we did was um, ordinarily people would use polling firms uh, or survey companies to make calls and ask um, whether someone supported uh, the candidate or not. Um, And you'd only get so far, but when you have an enormous volunteer base and people going out making tens of thousands of calls and knocks every day, um, essentially what would happen is we would take all of that information, headquarters would rerun the model and, and, and get a better sense of A, whether we were making any headway or B, whether the model needed to be shifted slightly and whether we should be focusing on different sorts of folks. And so every night, um, during the last couple of months of the election, that's essentially what was happening. And we would get new scores loaded in every day uh, that would then allow the field program to get a, a better look at who to talk to. And that's distinct from polling because polling is meant to be representative of an entire, of an entire, of a community of some size, either a state or a congressional district or a country or whatever. Whereas we know that the data you're getting from direct voter contact isn't representative because you're talking primarily to Democrats and people that you project might be supporters, might be supporters. What, why is it? So there've been a few cases recently where modeling has been as accurate or more accurate than polling. What is happening there? So I think in a, in a very crude way, I would say um, polling is essentially saying um, here are the base characteristics. So we know um, the population is split 52% men, 40, uh, sorry, 52% women, 48% men, the age brackets, all that stuff. We're going to ask, you know, 20 people from each one of these small buckets and based off of their responses, um, blow that up onto, projected onto the entire population of the United States. And so you had this issue in 2016 where uh, they essentially spoke to one uh, African-American teen 
um, who, you know, would show up in all these polls as like 20% African-American supporting Donald Trump, even though it was just one out of five uh, African-Americans that they, that they surveyed. So that's a very extreme example, but, but that's sort of how, how polling works. It's from the particular to the general, um, in, in modeling, it's slightly different. We try and go from the general to the particular. And so we try to talk to as many people as possible. Uh, and not only with, you know, the, the 20, 30 different pieces of information we know about them, but we're talking about hundreds of pieces of information. And then we're crossing those uh, consistently with each other uh, through aggression models to get a better sense of, of, um, of how we can apply that to that particular individual. So the, the analogy I, I've always heard and have used myself when it comes to polling is in the same way when you go to the doctor and get a blood test, they're not taking all of your blood out. They're taking a little bit of your blood out as a sample to then extrapolate everything there is to know about or everything they can learn from that blood um, from you again without having to pump out you know your entire body. How would that analogy carry over into the way the modeling is being used? Or can it? I mean, like in, in, in a way, like I'm kind of envisioning like it's uh, if polling and modeling are put together. So basically, again, going back to the blood and body analogy, the blood's coming out. Modeling then looks at kind of the information that's within that blood. And from that can kind of extrapolate um, if they take five people who grew up the exact same way in the same location, have the same interests, have the same diets, eating habits, et cetera, et cetera. They can, mm-hmm. they can you know, with some reasonable level of certainty say that, you know, this person has diabetes. So that person who also has a similar, um, lifestyle likely will also have diabetes. Yeah. I totally lose the analogy there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I would say that I would say that's somewhat accurate. I guess it would be, if we're, if we were using blood as the analogy, (laughs) Like, so it's important that we just let's talk as much about blood as possible on this podcast. <laughs> blood, 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 precious blood. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I, I think you know, again, with all of these things, it's important to to get a sense of like of how the information is being used. Like, okay, let's say, regardless of whether it's polling or modeling, we say X individuals are supportive of of your. Uh, of your policies, how do you go about using that information in the most efficient and effective ways? And I think that's uh, a lot of where 2016 and in the past Democrats have stumbled. Um, and I'm just, you know, talking about Democrats, forgetting Republicans for a second of like, what is the role of data in campaigns and in issue-based organizations? And how can we make um, that connection between field data um, and the field stronger? Um, and and separating it out from analytics. So analytics is sort of the modeling side of things, which is helpful and useful and important, but I think it's outsized importance versus the data side of things, which is the application of that information. Say a little bit more about this. So so analytics is is the gathering of information? Is it the processing of information? Can we just go a little bit more into like the mechanics of how analytics is different from data? Yeah, absolutely. so I, I would say, so the, the way that I like to think of it is data is the piece of information that I have on, on you, Frank. So all, every single one of those columns, I have different snippets of information about Frank, the person, um, and, that's, and that's data. 
when we talk about analytics, we're talking about using modeling um, and different techniques to, to create one synthesized score about Frank in regards to like a specific thing. So like Frank is, um, has a support score of 99 um, for Democrats. So he's a huge Dem supporter and that is his one score, but that is a created field. Um, it is not, it's, it's not data in and of itself, right? It's, it's um, yeah, it's a created field. And so uh, it's important to make decisions based off of analytics. Analytics can help make sense of data in a lot of ways. But I think a lot of times um, organizations get carried away by the analytics of things that they forget that maybe it's just important to take a step back and see how we can use the basic information we have on people in a way that makes sense. So for example, if we know that someone's retired, we probably uh, shouldn't call them after dinner. We should call them during the day, freeing up our you know, phone bankers to call other targets in the afternoon. So just thinking through very basic step-by-step things that I think we forget when we see the shiny analytics and all the cool things that it can predict for us. Mm, so the, that, that's, a, that's a really good, that's a really good distinction. So there's a lot of mileage that you can get out of the basics of data in terms of the mechanics of how you run a direct voter contact program or a persuasion push that would involve direct voter contact and, and bought media versus the, the sophisticated versus what looks like a sophisticated analytical a, a, analytics, you know, a score or something that could predict behavior. It's, it's easy to kind of, you know, lose the forest for the trees or maybe lose the trees for the forest, I guess would be a better example. This whole thing has been a wonderfully allegory, has been a lot of allegory and metaphor. <laughs> Uh, is is that a fair characterization? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, all right, good. What is the can you, and this is to a certain degree. I mean, I guess it is relevant to modeling and, and and polling both. To what extent can qualitative and quantitative uh, measures of you know of the of me or anyone else who's, who fits into your data set? To what extent can qualitative data be fit be met, be put into your into your data set? So, and for for our listeners who may not necessarily be familiar with this, uh, qualitative would be individual uh, opinion based. So, it's it, qualitative data is a, is a is a thing that is a piece of data about me, Frank Spring, that is distinct to me, Frank Spring. Quantitative is big numbers about people like Frank Spring. Right. Right. Um, I mean, I think this is still sort of an ongoing battle that I think different arms of any campaign still have. Um, And it's, it, I call it sort of the notes section uh, battle. And it's uh, when canvassers or field staff go out to knock on doors and have a great conversation with someone and uh, feel that, you know, the little boxes that say, yes, this person supports our candidate isn't enough to hold the entire value of the conversation. And so they make notes in the side and they want to put that back into the system. And in a lot of ways, it's incredibly helpful if you're, if you're running a one-on-one field-based operation. From the data side, um, we haven't figured out a way to fully make use and find value in that. Uh, Cause in a lot of ways um, the work that um, the, the notes that people make are subjective. Right. And, and when we talk about, I mean, essentially we're coming into a space of something called NLP or natural language processing, which is essentially taking each individual word and applying a score to it and figuring out whether it's positive or negative and, and coming up with a score of whether each comment is a positive or negative score, because that's really the only way computers can handle information. Um, and then and then sort of going from there. 
but, uh, but no, we haven't figured out a way to use qualitative data in a, in a useful, um, large-scale operation. One of the things that I think is, is, I think is relevant is that Jeff uh, Bezos, who whatever else we may or may not say or think about him, certainly understands data and the value of its use. Um, but one of the things that he likes to say about, about, the, about customer service is that in there's, when there's a conflict between anecdotes and data, customer feedback that is related as an anecdote because it's the customer's individual experiences and data that the anecdote usually has the truth of it. And then it reveals something wrong in the way that the data is being gathered or measured. I thought was a kind of interesting presupposition, uh, which may or may not be, be useful on a campaign, but the, I love the concept of the notes section. And the notes section is someone who's worked in field. The notes section is always one of my favorites for canvassers because they they're at the most amazing and, and often quite useful and wonderful, often quite useful, but a lot of the times just wonderful and delightful slices of life from the, you know, from campaigns. I once had a canvasser turn in a sheet that about the, that said about the voter in the, in what would be the note section, just in the margin was home, but is strange. And I was like, I want to create a tag. I want to create a piece of data to note that this is a strange voter and that we can identify other strange voters and potentially develop an outreach plan for this. And if we have strange volunteers, as you inevitably do, maybe we could have the strange volunteers reach out to the strange voters so that collectively we might turn out the strangest of all possible candidates or of all possible voters for our candidate. You know, Wasn't that yeah. Bernie's campaign's whole motto? Oh, oh boy, there's something. Vote, vote Dem, let's get weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think we have slightly different takes on uh, on the notes section. You know, for me, it was the bane of my existence uh, because there was no way to, on a large scale, when we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, to change, you know, tens of thousands of notes into, uh, it, it isn't scalable. We haven't a way to make it scalable. But I think that you're right. I think if you're trying to build relationships one-on-one with folks and reach out to the strange folks and, and build something beautiful and incredible off of that, then that's definitely the way to go. Um, it's just data data hasn't quite caught up with that yet. Sure. And it's, it's yeah, it, it kind of feels like, you know, there's the aspect of polling and research that has to do with focus groups. And then there's the quantitative, you know, scale of one to five or which one of these two options kind of things that you have to do. And the focus groups exist because there's some level that you, you do actually need the anecdotal evidence. You need to hear people say things that you can't necessarily, you don't necessarily even know where to qual like what things to be asking one to five. You know, you have to kind of create the base of these are the things that actually people are thinking about or saying, or this ad impacts them in this way. And then we can go out and actually test it. Right, exactly. It's sort of it's it's needing having the qualitative information to pinpoint um, a, a better area of research. That is absolutely true. So, who is? What are some of the smart ways that data is being used in politics and 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 also in government for that matter? But let's you know, particularly in politics, what are some of the smart ways it's being used right now? So I think right now we sort of, um, after 2016, the, the data and analytics folks are, have taken a step back to try and get a better sense of how we can better integrate with the rest of the organization. Um, you know, 2016 was a hard one uh, for a lot of those folks. Thankfully, I wasn't on that race. But I think, you know, 
whether you win or lose, whatever the hot new thing is usually gets the rap or the praise for. So in 2012, it was data and analytics, and that was why we won. In 2016, it was also data and analytics, and that's why we lost. And so I, we try and take that with a grain of salt. I think in terms of the smart ways, it's being used in politics. And um, honestly, right now, I, I would just say it helps with prioritization um, and and reducing waste and not only reducing waste in terms of the mail pieces that get printed out and sent out to people who aren't interested in your candidate, but also in terms of knocking on doors and who you talk to. Um, have there been any huge jumps in the last year or two in terms of how data is used in politics? No, there hasn't. Um, but in terms of how we make things better and how we make the whole process more efficient. Um, a big part of, um, of what we've been doing is working on integrations between different platforms so that staffers don't have to figure out long and convoluted ways of moving information from one type of platform to another so that they could reach out to voters. What type of platform, what platforms are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about messaging and digital platforms. So if you wanted to send out digital ads, how do you do that in a way that um, is efficient and effective? So rather uh, than taking whatever database you're using and manually exporting things and then playing around with the formatting and sending it to the shop who then needs something else and back and forth, uh, figuring out a way to do it where you're essentially clicking on one button uh, in your CRM that then forwards it directly to the mail firm uh, in the format that it needs. Yeah. So this this is a, a, a I think a, an important point for our listeners who may not have been may not have been through this experience. There are you know in any campaign of any size five or six different parts of the campaign, all of which can use data to make their operations more effective. Different elements of your community, there are two or three different elements of your communication shop, if not more, uh, and then you know your fundraising team. Uh, your field team, certainly a whole bunch of different enterprise, your political shop, depending on what that looks like. And for a long time, and I guess it sounds like in, in many cases, this is still true, uh, that campaign, that this data had, would come in a raw form that then had to be reprocessed and reinterpreted for the need specific to the needs of each shop. And so, which are, so, and which created a stupefying amount of wasted time, uh, through no fault of the people running on the, uh, through no fault of people running the data or analytics side, it was just the nature of the way the data was coming in. Yeah, exactly. And so not only do you have internally in terms of whether you're making calls or knocking on doors, you also have externally in terms of email campaigns, online ads, mail firms. Uh, now we have texting and gathering that information. We have information coming in from different events or fundraisers. Uh, so, so there are a lot of different ways information comes in. And then there are also information from partner organizations that are working with you. So especially if you're on the IE side, um, figuring out ways to, to have sort of the different organizations work together rather than target the exact same group of people over and over again. So using that as kind of the jumping off point to dive into 2016 a little bit. And again, you, you were very clear that you weren't involved. Um, there are a couple of things that have sort of caught my eye over the last few weeks um, Overall, I think that um, the Trump campaign's kind of bandying about their success with data has been, um, you know, like everything else related to Donald, to President Goodbrain, best words, uh, a lot of a lot of hokum and BS. Uh, but one of the things that really caught my eye was saying, they, uh, I think it was Brad Pascal, the um, guy who led digital and is now the uh, campaign manager for the president's reelect, although according to Joe Scarborough this morning, he's not going to run. Um, 
But one of the points that he made was that they were testing thousands of Facebook ads every day. Um, and I didn't really understand what that meant in terms of, were they actually creating thousands of different variations of similar ads and getting those out onto Facebooks to their supporters? And then based on how people were clicking on it or how long they were viewing it, determining what was better, what was worse. Again, I mean, your outside perspective, when somebody says something like that, A, is it possible? And B, how would they have gone about doing something like that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think when you talk about running thousands of different um, tests, there, there are a couple ways you can read that, right? The first way is that they literally created thousands of, of permutations permutations of the same ad, which I think is impossible unless they had, you know, uh, a basement downstairs, you know, with, with hundreds of people working on it around the clock. Um, the, the second thing, which I think is much more likely is that they took, let's say 10 or 20 ads and they tried thousands of different permutations of different groups of people. So on Facebook, I mean, as you guys know, right, there are different audiences and you can decide what time to target them. Um, you know, uh, based on different things that they're interested in. And so when you talk about thousands of different experiments that people are running, uh, I think it probably has to do with using that same ad and trying it on all these different groups to see, you know, which one uh, resonated the best and had the highest click-through rate or the highest view rate. And so from there, you can say, well, the green button works best with women, but the blue button works best with men, and therefore we'll just keep the blue button and change, let's say, the photo. Right. Do we have it all text or do we have the president elects, I guess, the president like candidate Trump's face all over it? Right. Um, and, and, and that's sort of um, what I read that that comment to be. Uh, but at the same time, that's nothing new. It's been done before. It's been done for years. So it's maybe the, the scale might be slightly different, but it's but it's not anything new. Right. So and kind of on, on, on the flip side, um you know, from a lot of the postmortems, which are obviously still coming out um, about the uh, about Hillary's campaign, uh, I think it was Stan Greenberg um, wrote a pretty brutal um, postmortem in America, the American Prospect, where he really went after. And Stan Greenberg is obviously a legendary pollster, um, worked for Bill Clinton in '92 and '96, and Gore in 2000. I mean, he's just been around Democratic politics for forever. Um, so for him to come at it from this perspective, a I thought maybe it might be a little bit of. Um, kind of told you so, like you should have been paying more attention to pollsters than your data. But the mm -hmm. point that he really was forcing really, really hard was uh, particularly Robbie Mook, the, um, the, the campaign, Hillary's campaign manager, his reliance on this algorithm and computer. And, you know, it, I envisioned something like, you know, Hal or something that was basically like leading them through everything that they were doing. Um, and again, you know, you mentioned that you weren't involved, but from what you've heard, what was the Hillary campaign too reliant? And if so, how were they too reliant on data versus sort of the, the, the polling, kind of polling the traditional or actually, yeah, traditional go, you know, going to Wisconsin, um, knocking yeah. on doors. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who, who worked on that race in the data and analytics shops uh, and in field. And I think the it, it's always it's always important to to take a look and see what people's motivations are when they go publicly and talk about something. So that's that's sort of my first takeaway on right. that. Um, the second thing I would say is um, what the data team 
says and what happens sometimes can be two different things. I think traditionally a lot of folks who have ended up in my field um, have not uh, done very well uh, in field aspect of things. And, and, and so when we talk about translating, wait, 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 are you saying data <laughs> geeks are not so good at dealing with people <laughs> or, um, or that people aren't so good at understanding data geeks? These might I be mean, the strange yeah. people Frank is talking about. This is getting weird. <laughs> I mean, you know, we all work in basements with Red Bull and Cheetos and red lights and no clocks or windows. But, but aside from that, I mean, I think it's important to know historically up until a couple of years ago, uh, data folks came out of the, the different rungs of field or political or other areas where they didn't particularly enjoy what they were doing and had a better tendency towards numbers and more sort of introspective thinking. And so when you build an entire organization, um, a section of the organization that is based on, uh, on, on fact and on numbers without taking into consideration the art that is needed to create those things and, and relaying that information in, uh, in, in ways that your field staff and your leadership can understand. Um, it makes it very difficult for the leadership to make accurate decisions. Um, you know, I've had folks from within that team tell me that they've told leadership certain things and they heard them in a completely different way and went about doing stuff in, in a way that they wouldn't recommend. So, uh, figuring out a way to have that, that translation between the technical and non-technical sides is so important uh, and, and something that I think we should all be collectively working on from both sides to get a better sense of, of what data can and cannot do and that it's not just this silver bullet that can, that can tell you whether you're going to win or lose at any given point in time. This raises a really good point. Uh, so we've talked about what what the smart use of data can do. It can help prioritize, can help you sift through the the universes of of people that you want to talk to, and 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 help maybe offer some guidance for how you want to talk to them. Uh, a little bit a little bit tougher, but you can do it. What what means and so forth. What can't it do? I mean, I you know I a lot of times when when people when new candidates come to me and ask me about about data and. And what the expectations are there. I think it's important whenever you're talking to a vendor or um, or listening to someone's stories, having them explain it to you in words of one syllable or less. Um, and if they can't do that, then uh, then they they can't do what they're saying they can do, right? Uh, snake oil is everywhere um, uh, when it comes to data and in terms of its functionality these days. Uh, and while data is incredibly important, like I said, it's not a silver bullet, and it 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 can't um, it can't give you any answer with a hundred percent certainty. And I think that's what a lot of people have been relying on the last couple of years is that it can tell you, you know, Hillary is going to win ninety eight percent of you know pollsters think she's going to win. Well, that. What that essentially means is if you were to run this exact same thing a hundred times, there are two scenarios in which she would win and, or she would lose. So uh, it's, it's important to, to keep that in mind and, and people's understanding of probability leaves a lot uh, to be... <laughs> a lot to be desired. Yeah. How, how much of this is uh, the kind of the generational divide between um, baby boomers um, into... Um, Generation X and then into into millennials. I mean, it, it seems that you know baby boomers to some extent might be look might have looked at this as kind of like the new hotness, and it can tell us everything that we need to do. 
whereas millennials might be a little bit more skeptical. And then even Generation X is looking at it and be like, wait, 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 slow down, everybody. This is actually a lot of snake oil and crap. This is actually what it does. Don't get ahead of yourselves. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's I think you know those three perspectives are are correct and accurate in in different ways. I think um, one of the important things also to keep in mind from from the data standpoint is um, a lot of times people want help when you work on a campaign. All you want to do is give as much of yourself to that campaign as you can. Um, and uh, when you're on data staff, uh, in a lot of ways, sometimes you can forget that. Uh, your work, uh, while incredibly important, may not be the most important thing at a given moment. Maybe comms might be, uh, depending on a particular moment in uh, the election cycle. Uh, so, you know, it, 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 really, it really depends. I think all sides uh, should, for the most part, take a step back and get a better sense of, uh, try and understand sort of the how and the how of, of the data of how it was created um, before sort of rushing to some sort of conclusion as to, as to how to use it. Mm-hmm. What is the, the indication? So the, the ability to, the tendency to promise that your, that your data will predict something hundred percent, that would be one indication that you're being sold snake oil. Uh, what are some of the other warning signs if you're looking for a product in data or analytics that something that someone is selling you a pop? Sure. Yeah, I, I, I would say that the explanation part is incredibly important. So the first thing when someone tells you, well, we know that this that this model has, you know, 98 percent, um, you know, probability of, uh, of it being correct and asking questions, even if they seem like silly questions, they're never, ever silly questions. I think that's one of the things that um, uh, a lot of candidates and leadership sort of need to be OK with is that. A lot of times when you ask the questions, you force data staff to re-examine sort of their uh, methodologies and how they're approaching things. And if they can't explain to you exactly what criteria has gone into making a certain model, then they fo- don't fully understand it themselves. Um, and you probably shouldn't be trusting them to, to make those huge decisions for you. When it comes to creating the actual algorithmic model, um, and this was something that, that, that has really struck me, um, listening to Zuckerberg um, on the Hill a couple weeks ago or uh, reading anything about um, Google, you know, there's supposed to be benign algorithms that, that you know, it's not supposed to weight anything one way or the other, but clearly there's some weighing going on. So, I mean, obviously Ted Cruz, when he does his questioning, saying that there's, you know, a bias against conservatives and therefore Facebook's terrible and we should you know, get rid of it or you should just hire people who worked at Heritage to work at Facebook, whatever it might be. Bottom line is, is that the, the, the algorithm is still being created, weighted, thought about by people who have biases, who are making decisions, whether it's Facebook or Google, that, okay, the neo-Nazi stuff, we're going to push down in the results. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the campaigns, how, how is that um, bias probably isn't the right word, but how, how are those choices kind of eliminated? Assumptions. Or, yeah, right. Are the assumptions kind of catered to or worked around? I mean, I think that's sort of why it's art and science and not just science. Um, when in the Zuckerberg case, uh, you know, it's happened a lot sort of in AI and machine learning, especially on Twitter is that they, they put together different bots and find out within, you know, a couple of hours 
of uh, unmanned learning. So where you're not suppressing anything or making any changes where the algorithm is not pretty. It's not pretty. Exactly. And so the algorithms learn from the environment that they're in. Uh, machine learning happens based on what it sees around it. And so if, uh, you know, if you are removing neo-Nazi content or if you're um, deciding that a certain variable doesn't fit in well into a model that you're building for a candidate, um, that's just one small piece. Uh, bigger parts of it are, are based on what people are gathering in the field and what's being said. And so as long as you know that, you know, what's going to come out is some reflection of what went in, um, that, that that's that's an important thing to know. You can never completely remove assumptions from from that line of work. Okay, that that's that's uh, yeah, that's a great answer, um, and, and thank you. Um, before we turn to sort of our, our lightning round a little bit, oh, no. um, <laughs> let, let's segue. No, it, we'll, we'll segue into kind of a practical thing for our for some of our listeners who may be political adjacent as opposed as as opposed to directly political. What should a good citizen who wants to participate and be involved in you know normal social the social media society what are kind of like guidelines in terms of protecting themselves on the privacy front but also just in terms of interacting with people what are sort of the guidelines or like how to's or the you know best practices that you recommend to people yeah i mean i'm you know probably not the best person i uh i sort of stopped really using facebook about uh, seven or eight years ago. So it's been a while, but, um, but, I, but I would say that the most important thing is, is taking, taking pretty much an hour or two out of your weekend to just go through all the different privacy settings of your social media accounts, making changes um, to get a better sense of, uh, of, of where you currently stand. It's incredibly important. The way that I approach social media uh, comes from the fact that like, I'm waiting for things to blow up at any moment. So any content that I put out there I put out with the express understanding of knowing that maybe one day it'll come back to haunt me. And perhaps it's not the most, you know, uh, easygoing thing, but, but that's sort of the way that I approach things. And it's served me well the last couple of years, um, in terms of the kind of information I put out there. And we, uh, we, we at taking ship have taken on a new policy. Uh, we saw someone else tweet this recently that, uh, anytime that they are faced with the opportunity to respond to tweets or trolls or something like that, rather than actually engaging with them, they are now just posting pictures of pineapples. Oh my God. That is fabulous. I love that. <laughs> oh, I may actually take that up too. Yeah. I've, I, I did it twice today already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. It's, it's a golden era for backing out of online arguments. <laughs> I mean, how do you even respond to that, right? You can't even get mad at, at a pineapple. So it's just right. and it, and right. my wife tells me it's the universal sign for hospitality. <laughs> I don't know how that came about, but that is true. British yeah. Columbia. It's very, it's a very interesting story. All right, Frank. Anything else, or should we move on to our to our lightning round? This has been great. Uh, I mean, we could we could talk about this all afternoon, uh, but I think I think we should move into our lightning round. All right. So, um, so with that, Lila, let's move into our lightning round. Um, okay. Our first question is, uh, if there's a recommendation you have for our listeners of a book, a piece of music, a film, or a television program that you have seen, heard, or read recently that you'd recommend? Yeah, I would. Uh, it's, you know, since your listeners are podcast listeners, um, this is very different from the uh, 
political. Um, it's an incredible podcast uh, by a man named Jonathan Fields called The Good Life Project. Uh, as you guys know, like we've all worked in in or around politics for a long time, and it's important to uh, to figure out ways to take care of yourself so you don't burn out completely. Um, and Jonathan's podcast is pretty incredible. Talks to a lot of great people about uh, how to live a good life and what that actually means, whether it's sending out pineapples or cat memes to people. So all very important questions. The two yeah, primary approaches to living a good life is, uh, I think, I think, I think Plato <laughs> originally introduced those as the, the main theme to achieving you. Yeah, I mean, like really when you wake up in the morning, there's really on, only one question that you should be answering. Is it a pineapple or cat day? A- absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, I recently jumped on Instagram and I realized the, the source of all happiness comes from not following friends or anyone important or fanciness, just either cat or dog uh, accounts. They're fabulous, you know? You don't, it's just happiness. Maybe the occasional goat or two yeah. uh, and, and you're set. You're the, set for the, the bloodhound accounts I find to be the best. Interesting. I will check those out. Yeah. Uh, all right. So our next question is uh, a food or a drink you've had recently that you recommend. Uh, let's see. So at a specific location or just generally? Just generally. Honestly, I had um, a delightful panna cotta not a couple of weeks ago at this restaurant in DC that totally blew my world. Uh, so if anyone happens to be there, I'd strongly recommend the iron gate for that. Um, but man, something just so great about warm or cold creaminess. Mm, delicious. Truth. All right. Uh, um, are tater tots fries? No. All right. Um, okay. Our fourth question is in the Trump era, uh, lots of people are interested in doing something. What's one organization you recommend supporting and why? Um, because I'm a perpetual campaigner, I think for me, the the most uh, important organization to come out of the last year or two has been the Campaign Workers Guild. Um, they're working to unionize campaign workers, and I think it's incredibly helpful and uh, would make me consider going back to a campaign if I knew that, you know, basic rights like not working 20 hour days and having health insurance were mandatory. Uh, so, so I would strongly recommend them if any of your listeners are staffers. Um, but if we're talking about the general public, honestly, it doesn't really matter what organization you support as long as uh, you're having sort of deep, meaningful conversations with people uh, and, and, and connecting with them in meaningful ways. Cause that's essentially what makes a change. It's not an organization. It's those conversations. That's a, Great, right? I feel so much more optimistic over the last couple of minutes of this. Uh, really, really closing on a high note here. I like yeah, it. You, you, Lila, you mentioned you're not on Facebook anymore, uh, but now you are on Instagram. Where can uh, our, our listener listeners, uh, we don't work for anymore, uh, where can people follow you? Uh, people can follow me on Twitter, um, Lila, L-A-I-L-A underscore Elgahari, E-L-G-O-H-A-R-Y. Um, I'm on Twitter and most of what I focus on is data related. Uh, so we can always chat there and on my website, full name as well. Um, pretty easy to find if you know how to spell my name. Terrific. And we will post that on, on our Twitter feed. Uh, w- with that, um, uh, Lila, this has really been fantastic. We'll, we'll have to have you on again, um, as we kind of get closer into the, into the fall and see how, uh, data usage is being broken out by, all the various different campaigns. And I think Beto O'Rourke is still swearing not to use consultants or data, but whoever, whatever the hell he's doing down in Texas. And yes, Sonia, I pronounced his name correctly this time. 
Uh, with that, uh, Frank, uh, uh, before we jump on our boat or our ship, the, the, uh, uh, I think we've now decided it is the Salty Jason's Revenge. Uh, I want to remind all of our listeners to please rate us and uh, subscribe, very important, uh, on iTunes or any of the platforms that you choose to use. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship and email us at, at takingship at gmail.com and let us know uh, if you're interested in a t-shirt and what size. Um, and follow uh, Frank at Frank Spring and me at Ellie Jacobs. Uh, so with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? This week we head to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, uh, where scientists have discovered that a, a, uh, a colony of bull sharks uh, has moved and taken up residence around the Outer Banks. This is unusual because they tend to stay uh, in uh, they tend to stay farther out. Uh, but they are moving. Uh, the scientists will tell you as a result of climate change. Now this may be what the science says. But as you know, we at Taking Ship have a very strict policy with regard to science. We are against it. Uh, and uh, this looks to me the arrival of a, sudden, of, a, uh, of a sudden movement, a division, one might say, a brigade of bull sharks in the Outer Banks of North Carolina suggests to me an offensive maneuver in the seas continuing war on all land-based life, including and especially us. And therefore, as part of our responsibility to protect our fellow terrestrial citizens, uh, Taking Ship is headed to the Outer Banks to repel this offensive by the bull sharks uh, first to get some uh, some very vinegary barbecue, this being North Carolina. We're looking forward to that. Uh, we'll get some cookout. And then we will repel the bull sharks uh, using the one thing that we are absolutely confident will drive anyone out of the state of North Carolina. And that is we are going to dump a bunch of Duke basketball fans on them. Do not call us heroes, but don't not call us heroes. Uh, friends, we take ship now for the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Yeah, take care, everybody. Shashevsky, we're coming for you.